Cecilia and I want to send our sincerest thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Karen and I send prayers. The power of prayer. Thoughts and prayers. The right thing to do is to pray in moments like this because you know what? Prayer works. Thoughts and prayers are really the only thing that's going to stop the evil from within the individual who is taking up their arms to do this kind of a massacre. Holland Holm doesn't care much for thoughts and prayers anymore, at least not ones from politicians. And that's not because he doesn't believe in the power of prayer. On the contrary, he had, in fact, just wrapped up a prayer circle at his high school when he was 14 years old, and a classmate opened fire, and Holland felt his head start to burn as blood dripped down his cheek. He looked around and saw one friend shot through the neck. Another lay in a pool of blood that poured from her abdomen. When this scene unfolded in 1997, Holland quietly accepted the thoughts and prayers that were offered to him. But that was 21 years and dozens of school shootings ago. Then, early this year, there was yet another school shooting, this time in Marshall County, Kentucky, in which two were killed and 18 injured. Afterward, the governor made a proclamation I'm Matthew G. Bevan, Governor of Kentucky, do hereby proclaim Sunday, January 28, 2018, as a day of prayer for Marshall County. I urge Kentuckians of all faiths to pray earnestly for God's comfort upon the victims and their families. That's when Holland said no more. I believe in God and I believe in the power of prayer, but I also believe in political power because that's what gets wielded most on a daily basis. And if you're the governor of a state, you have actual power, you've got a, a bully pulpit, so to speak, as an, as an absolute cop-out, uh, particularly coming from a person that was shot in a prayer group, that that's, that's your solution. He doesn't want prayers. He wants action. From the team that brought you accused in collaboration with The Trace, This is Aftermath, a podcast about gunshot survivors. I'm Amber Hunt. When reporting on this project began, Parkland was just one of 22,000-some public high schools in America most of us had never heard of. The students there were worried about homework assignments and prom and had significantly fewer Twitter followers than they have today. Hashtags like March for Our Lives and Never Again were, frankly, kind of unthinkable. But a lot changed relatively quickly as I reported this with Elizabeth Van Brocklin of The Trace. That scene there played out in an American high school classroom today. Those are teenagers on the floor under their chairs and desks screaming as gunshots were fired. That was a CNN reporter describing a video filmed by a teenager on Valentine's Day 2018 when a 19-year-old former student opened fire on Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. 17 were killed, 17 more were injured. That shooting seemed to have changed the political landscape. It also affected this project. Our intent when we began was to mostly avoid political discussion in these episodes. We even limited how much of the interview subject's opinions on the matter we included. That's largely for two reasons. First, their opinions pretty much line up with national polling on the subject. Most support the Second Amendment and don't want it abolished. 
But they also support tougher background checks in some kind of way to at least temporarily take guns away from people who've been threatening others. In other words, their views are in line with some 90% of Americans, according to multiple polls. The second reason we didn't want to get political is because our goal was to show what happens after someone's shot, both mentally and physically. Politicians and activists trading barbs about what's to blame doesn't soften those experiences. So we figured we'll keep this focused on people rather than policy. And we still will, but we also need to acknowledge that the landscape has changed over the past several months, and we'd be remiss if we wrapped up this project without talking about it. So let's talk. Holland Holm seems the perfect way into this discussion. He was shot in one of the first school shootings I remember hearing about, back when I was a teenager myself in 1997. I had just a year earlier graduated high school, so I never had to endure the shooting drills that became routine for kids born in the aughts and beyond. When I heard about the Heath High School shooting, those kinds of drills seemed extreme. They seemed that way to Holland, too. Paducah is, I think, like the sixth or seventh largest city in the state of Kentucky. It's situated on the Ohio River in McCracken County. Holland was an only child raised by his parents in Paducah in western Kentucky. It's the kind of humid southern town that slicks your skin in the summer, but it's far enough north that it still has four separate seasons. It's primary industry for, you know, from the 60s up until started kind of changing off in the 80s was there's a big gaseous diffusion plant for some uranium enrichment. Uh, My dad worked there. My grandfather worked there. My mom, you know, worked as a secretary for a wholesale produce broker. He was a smart kid. His job today as a lawyer backs that up with a wry sense of humor. He also was devout in his religion, which is why when he started Heath High School in the fall of 1997, He joined a prayer group that met in the lobby before school. We had, I would say, about 15 to 20 students would gather, talk about prayer requests, maybe some small, short devotional, and then everybody would hold hands and someone would say a prayer, and then, you know, five or 10 minutes, we'd leave. And this happened in less than 20 minutes before class started. So as soon as that was over, we'd go straight to class. Was religion a big part of your life? Yeah, it was, and it still is. I am attend Highland Baptist Church in town. I teach a Sunday school class. You know, I was pretty active in my church at the time, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was a leader of the prayer group, but I was definitely in attendance pretty regularly. The morning of December 1st of that year began as uneventful. Kids were just coming back from Thanksgiving break. Holland doesn't remember much as noteworthy about the morning. As far as he remembers, he bummed a ride off his neighbor Kyle, and he walked into the school and headed to the lobby, which was... Almost like nerve center of the school. From this nerve center, you walked one way and you hit the receptionist's office. You kept going and you would find the vice principal and the principal's offices. You walked into the lobby from outside through glass double doors, and Holland remembers two concrete columns that helped separate that space from a hallway with students' lockers. The Christian club members gathered in prayer as usual. It was so routine that Holland doesn't remember what they had focused their prayer on that day. Whatever the topic, the session lasted about 10 minutes, and then... 
We all sort of broke for the day. And then I just remember walking back towards class and, you know, hearing one or two, maybe three pop sounds like a balloon popping or like a firecracker popping. And then there's like nothing. And then I wake up and I'm on the floor, I'm on the ground. You know, it's cold because it's December 1st. It's the day after Thanksgiving break. And I'm laying on the floor and I may have looked up and I saw my friend Craig with his brother, Stephen, kind of pushing him up against a column, um, the, the, big, the, the two big concrete columns. And he's pushing him up against that. And I think I saw, you know, like a spot on Craig's neck that looked kind of like a pimple, maybe some blood coming down from that. And I was like trying to ask what's going on. And Stephen was like, lay down, shut up, be quiet. And I think it was that point when I looked back down at the floor and it was like a, a beigeish, whitish color. And I'm looking down at the tile on the floor and I see like little red drops, like one, two, maybe three. And I realized what it is, it's blood. And I'm like, not really understanding what's going on. Stephen was a classmate of Holland's, just another teenager. So I'm impressed he had the wherewithal to order Holland to stay down. I ask you, yeah. was his tone urgent? Was it calming? Was it, what was the tone? I think it was urgent. Um, you know, he was definitely protecting Craig and uh, wanted to make sure he was okay. And Craig, you know, if I remember his face right, it was just kind of blank, like not really sure what was going on. Holland wasn't sure yet either. You know, I realized, oh, sh- oh something bad had happened. Um, you know, I didn't really understand what. You know, I was pretty, uh, and, uh, you know, I put my hand up to the side of my head and I pulled it down and there was blood and maybe a little bit of hair in my hand. And I realized, you know, I'd been shot. Imagine being 14 years old and realizing you've been shot in the head. The way Holland describes how he felt at that realization puts most understatements to shame. At least as far as I understood from that time, that's a pretty serious injury. And so I didn't know to what extent. So, you know, I was pretty, uh, pretty scared at that point. Now we talk a lot about mass shootings as though they're a recent phenomenon, but that's of course not true. Holland had seen and read news coverage of others. And he remembers thinking about one of those incidents after realizing he'd been shot. I can't remember when the Luby's cafeteria shooting was in Texas. It was October 16th, 1991. A man drove through the front window of a restaurant, fatally shot 23 people and wounded 27 others before killing himself. That, for whatever reason, kind of sticks out in my mind as one of the first mass shootings that ever kind of got on my register as a a child. But I remember just hearing some of the survivors of that talking about how after the initial firing, they just kind of laid down and played dead. So that's what I did. I just... Like, I'm just going to play dead so I don't get shot again. Um, And I um, I sort of tried to calm myself and say, you know, what I thought would be my final prayer. You know, I thought I was going to die. And so I just kind of made my peace with everything and just kind of laid there and just ready to die. I didn't know what was going to happen. What does a 14-year-old pray? Just, um, I think I was sorry for whatever 
sins, you know, I had that a 14-year-old can have. I just said, you know, just tried to be at peace with it. Um, hard to remember a lot. He takes a sip of water and swallows hard. After a minute, I ask what the scene was like around him. As I remember, there was a period of quiet. I don't know, it seemed like an eternity. But there was a period of quiet where everything was just kind of on pause. And at some point, I remember, I can't remember what kind of caused it. I'm sure, you know, shock or something like that was going on with me. I just realized, okay, it looks like this is over. I'm going to get up. In a state of shock, he started walking around. Slowly, the silence ended. At that point, whatever quiet seemed like it kind of gone over to, like, crying or wailing or something like that. Um, so people were obviously hurt. People were in pain. I know at least one girl was on the floor kind of writhing or calling out in pain. And there were some, like, three or four people that just kind of weren't moving on the floor. Holland walked past the person he would soon learn was his shooter. Holland knew him. It was a 14-year-old classmate. Who was a friend of mine. You know, we shared at least an elementary school class. I think third grade, we used to sit at the lunch table every day. Now this friend was crouched on one knee in a ready position. Soon, a principal approached him and silently walked the teen toward an office. Holland remembers seeing a silver gun that turned out to be a 22 caliber Ruger pistol the kid had taken from a neighbor's garage. You might notice I'm not mentioning this kid's name. I've named other shooters in this series, but I worry that naming school shooters in particular can lend them notoriety that can lead to copycats. And using his name here doesn't help me tell the story anyway, so I won't. But name aside, let me be clear that this scene Holland describes is not glamorous. It's pathetic. The kid's head was hung low, his shoulders slumped. He's in prison now. And that's his home for life. The team at Aftermath is grateful to have Quip as a sponsor of the show. When you walk down the toothbrush aisle at the store, it doesn't take long to realize there are lots of options, and many of them are gimmicks. The truth is, you really just need something that guides the simple habits most of us get wrong when brushing our teeth. And Quip knows that. Quip is the sleek new electric toothbrush that was called the best electric toothbrush by GQ and the Tesla of toothbrushes by Bloomberg. With Quip, I don't have to worry about getting new brush heads or toothpaste. They're delivered right to my door on a dentist-recommended schedule, so I replace my brush on time and have better oral hygiene at an affordable price. If you're like me and you're a fan of anything that puts a necessary yet annoying aspect of your personal care on autopilot, then you really have to get Quip. It's a no-brainer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com aftermath right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com aftermath, spelled G-E-T. Q-U-I-P dot com slash aftermath. Three of Holland's classmates were killed in the shooting. 14-year-old Nicole Hadley, 15-year-old Casey Steger, and 17-year-old Jessica James. Five others were injured. 
One, a friend of Holland's named Missy Jenkins, was paralyzed from the chest down. Holland and the others injured were rushed to hospitals. Nancy Holm, Holland's mom, was a preschool teacher getting ready for work when her phone rang. It was Holland's school. And they just said that Holland had been in an accident and that I needed to come to the hospital. Things were so chaotic that the caller at first didn't know which hospital. One of Nancy's friends called and, as soon as Nancy found out where to head, agreed to meet her there. On the drive to Lord's Hospital, Nancy saw that police cars had traffic backed up. But I still didn't, I didn't have a clue. And, and the whole time I was just going, you know, God, just give me peace for whatever has happened. You know, I, I thought maybe he fell down the stairs. I, you know, I had no clue. Amazingly, Holland was largely okay, at least in terms of what could have been. The bullet struck his head, but didn't penetrate his skull. It sort of gouged a path along his scalp. There was a lot of blood, but that's because the head has a lot of little capillaries. Head injuries can bleed a ton without being very serious, Holland felt. Like an aching kind of pain. In the side of his head. He used a towel a teacher gave him to keep pressure on it. I think it's fair to say that Holland was maybe not your typical high school freshman. Case in point, this story he tells. I don't know, at some point I tried to, I pulled out my medical health insurance card to give to the ambulance guys. I don't know, like I was worried about getting to a hospital or whatever that was in network or something, something dumb like that. I, I do remember that. So you were kind of a weird 14 year old. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> 14 year old that grew up to become a lawyer. So. Yeah, yeah, all right. So maybe you were on that I path do, already. Yeah, responsible. Yeah, yes, that's it's like, the word. That's yes, the word. I, I want to be in, in network. I love these moments of levity in our interview. This stuff is obviously hard to talk about. Humor helps. Holland's jokes didn't just come slowly over time. He went home with 13 staples in his scalp, and his mom remembers that he began joking right away. He, he would show every, you know, he wore a hat the first couple of days, but, you know, he would make sure he'd go, you want to see, you know, like that. And then he did a thing in class where he pretended like he was pulling the staples out, you know. He, uh, he had staples in his hand, and he would pretend like and drop them on the table and, you know, just trying to freak the girls out and everything. And, you know, he would, he would tell everybody he was worried about his haircut, you know, because it messed up his haircut and things like that. We had some sort of like gallows humor or sarcasm or just, I mean, it's weird. It's weird shit to deal with, to see like satellite trucks all over town and like, you know, everybody at the school. So to process it, at least for me and Craig, at least initially, you know, it was very much trying to make light of the fact. Craig is the classmate who had been shot in the neck, the one whose brother told Holland to lie down. He and Holland were close friends. I mean, if you look at the grand scheme of things, we weren't super injured physically. I mean, we were basically fine within a few weeks or so. So, you know, a lot of the way we processed it was just making light of it. So Craig would always make fun of me because I didn't have an exit wound, and he did. So he was much more injured than I was. And I don't know if people can understand that, that are sitting on the outside. I don't want them to think that we wanted to belittle any of the tragedy for anybody else or that 
we wanted to make light of it, but between us, amongst us, between the two of us, like that's kind of how we dealt with it and processed it. I sense he's feeling self-conscious, so I tell him. Just so you know, this yeah. isn't the first time we've encountered okay. that. So right. it is, that's I think it's, I mean, it's a survival technique. Yeah, and I'm not, I mean, I know soldiers in the military deal with it that way. I'm sure that's pretty common, but I don't want it to, to be construed as making light of it. Like, I don't think it will. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so to be honest, I, I just felt kind of like a lot of times like a hangers-on in the whole situation. Like, I wasn't really that hurt. So we joked. Nancy understood it was a defense mechanism, and she tried to give him room to deal with it however he needed to. But at some point, she and Holland's dad, Jimmy, said, enough. They are just like, well, just enough with the commentary. Just kind of turn it off. I guess I was getting on their nerves or something. And it was just like, just, you know, maybe not with that, with the, the bit or whatever you're doing. Holland knows now, as an adult, that he was trying to downplay his suffering in the shooting. He wasn't entitled to feel like a victim, he figured, because he lived. Aside from a scar in his hairline, he would fully recover physically. He knows now, too, that his parents reached their limit with his jokes, because they were also traumatized. The whole community was. Not only had three children been killed in such a brutal, senseless way, but another child they knew had pulled the trigger. Eight months after the shooting, Nancy broke down. I, I got to the point where um, I, was, I was just crying and angry and, um, you know, just um, an emotional wreck. And I didn't recognize it as depression. I just, you know, I really didn't put it all together. But um, our minister, who is a very good friend of ours, I talked to him, and he said, you've got the classic symptoms. You know, go see a counselor and get some medication. And so that's, you know, that's what I did. I didn't have to see the counselor for long because she was like, we know what caused this. You know, we know the chemical um, reaction that, that your body's had through all of this. She was open with Holland about what was happening with her. He asked if it was his fault. And I said, no, you know, it didn't have anything to do with you. It's just, you know, the situation. And I said, you know, I did try to keep it together for so long, and, you know, I just couldn't do it anymore. Holland was also suffering more than he let on. He remembers one moment in particular. There was one time in Walmart where my mom and I were standing in line checking out and, like, there were balloons popping, and it was just like, I felt all the color drain from my face. And my mom was like, are you okay? I was like, no. It's like, it's okay, we'll get out of here. And so we left, but there were times like that. It was, it was, it was really bad for the first year or so, but as time has gone on, it's kind of lessened, but there are still times when you get the trigger, like, he remembers watching a shooting drill on TV when he was in college, and he can still describe the overturned tables and police running around. I was there. Like, I was back in feeling the same kind of scared kind of thing that I had back then. Um, so, yeah, there's definite... It stays with you. So you're watching it on TV. Yeah, you see it on TV. It, and it it's not even like... Back. Yeah, coverage of this, and, like, I'm back there. Like, I'm back 
healing the same kind of feelings you have that day. And so, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it stayed, I had to leave the room. Like I just couldn't be even in the same room with that. Uh, sort Is it of thing. a panic? What does it feel like? Um, and I'm sorry, no, it's only fine. as much as you're comfortable. Yeah, no, yeah. it's fine. It's, um, yeah, it's sort of a panic. It's sort of a, a fear kind of flight or fight response. Like it's definitely a panic and you're scared and it's like, you're present, but you're not present. You're somehow straddling present time and past time. After the shooting, Holland, like most others we've interviewed for this project, became strangely famous in his hometown. He remembers... Just tons and tons of people coming in to talk and ask questions. And at some level, you like the attention, but on some level, you're like, just get out of here. And then people were trying to relate, like... Like, like, this is just like what happened to our kid when we had to sue that teacher for, for hurting. I'm like, no, this is nothing like that. He was like, the teacher threw him up against the locker. I'm like, no, it's, it's nothing like that. They didn't almost die, you know, just, yeah. So There's not a lot on par with shot in the head. No, no, there's not. The prayer circles after the shooting were enormous. Before then, maybe 15 or 20 kids would gather before school. The first one afterward? I would say the numbers swelled to well over 100 people there, which is a significant chunk of the school. After that, life started to calm down and things quieted. But still, attendance at the prayer circle hovered around 40 or 50 each meeting. After Holland finished high school, he went to Western Kentucky University for undergrad then got his law degree from the University of Louisville's Brandeis School of Law. Leaving Paducah was a bit liberating. People can't tell from looking at him that he was ever shot, and he hadn't talked much publicly about the experience, so he could fly under the radar for the most part. He joined the college newspaper, and it was there that he met a young woman named Kate, who would first become his friend and eventually his wife. She didn't know for several months about his backstory until he blurted it out in this joking, not joking, awkward kind of way. The rest of us, I think, were taken aback. But she loves his humor. She tells a quintessential Holland story. When we were in college, he had a newspaper column, a humor column, and he decided uh, to ask the president of the university to engage in an arm wrestling contest with him. And they had a big event that day and he talked trash leading up to it in his column. And uh, President Ransdell was really good natured about it and engaged in it and they had robes that they wore and came out and came down the stairs in the university center and had an arm wrestling contest. So he would, he took that very seriously, but it was also. You have not mentioned who won. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, Holland would be very excited uh, for me to tell you that he won that. <laughs> the team here at Aftermath is grateful to have Simply Safe as a sponsor of the show. In 2017, the Better Business Bureau heard more than 5,000 complaints about alarm companies. That puts home security in the top 10% of most complained about industries. Simply Safe, the home security company I use and trust, knows how to avoid all those complaints. Here's how they've done it. They got rid of contracts and hidden fees. They work hard to earn their customers' business instead of relying on tricks and fine print. 
Simply put, Simply Safe is a company that treats you right. How rare is that today? A company that relies on good service and a great product to earn your business. It's why they've got an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau for 10 years running. And there are over 40,000 five-star reviews online. Simply Safe is what home security should be. You're getting the best protection, period. I can't tell you how easy it was to get mine set up, and the peace of mind I have now is priceless. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/aftermath. That's simplysafe.com/aftermath to protect your home and family with an A+ home security system. simplysafe.com/aftermath. Both Kate and Holland got their law degrees. They have two kids whom we'll just call as rambunctious as they are adorable. It's because of those children that Holland has decided to take a hard look at what happened to him 14 years ago and try to understand how his reaction to school shootings has evolved over the years. At first, he was scared. After Columbine, the infamous 1999 school shooting in which two teenagers killed 12 classmates and a teacher before killing themselves, some less-than-empathetic students came to high schools across the country wearing black trench coats as an apparent nod to the killers. Holland was a junior then. His mom says, I can still remember his Spanish teacher calling me and saying, Now, Nancy... Holland made me lock the door because, you know, these kids that he knew, but they came to school dressed in black. When another young man opened fire on Sandy Hook Elementary School, killing 20 children between ages 6 and 7 years old, Holland and Kate had recently become first-time parents. Holland texted Nancy, Mom, they were kids. His daughter reached the age of those victims and came home describing an active shooter drill she had done with her classmates. Holland asked his wife, when will this stop? Sandy Hook had prompted some talk about tighter background checks that largely went nowhere. Holland took note in 2013 when Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell tweeted out a meme that, in short, mocked attempts to expand background checks on firearm purchases. Lawmakers rejected the Toomey Mansion bill in a 54-46 to vote. Then, early this year, there was a shooting close to Holland's Kentucky home, this time in Marshall County. 18 were injured, two were killed. That was upsetting enough, but then Governor Bevin declared a statewide day of prayer, and McConnell offered thoughts and prayers. Holland thought back on that flippant meme from 2013. That really kind of stuck in my crawl back then when that happened. And then to see him offer a bunch of bullshit thoughts and prayers to the family of another school shooting after that happened, I got incredibly upset. He wrote a Facebook post calling for changes to gun laws, and then feeling like that was too weak a move, he fleshed out the post into a news column that was published in the Louisville Courier-Journal. In it, he wrote about how each school shooting throws him back into the lobby of Heath High School, lying prone on the floor, watching blood spatter on the cold tile in front of him. He joined Mom's Demand Action and agreed to speak at an anti-gun rally in Frankfurt on Valentine's Day this year. He was driving home with his wife and mother when he started getting the news alerts on his phone. Just 
one after another after another, like shooting in Parkland, you know, this many dead, and the numbers, you know, just keep kind of rising throughout the day or the afternoon, and it was just like, just frustrating that you're there talking about the issue, and then, meanwhile, one of the largest ones in American history is going on that same day. As awful as he felt, he said he would have felt even worse had he not started speaking publicly before then. And now... Anytime a reporter calls or something, you know, I'll take the call, I'll give the interview, I'll talk about it because I feel like I have to. It's not, it's not something that's super comfortable for me to do. I'm sure you can tell based on the, the, the timbre of my voice and, you know, my body language. It's not easy to do and it's still something that's incredibly raw, but um, I just feel like it's a story that has to be told over and over again. At least I can feel like I'm doing something rather than just reading tweets from a politician who's just trying to jerk everybody around. He's not sure precisely what will stem the shootings. He doesn't have a 14-point plan to share with the world. But he wants people to be willing to have genuine, level-headed conversation and be open to doing something, he says, beyond prayer. Like most everybody, Holland figured the cycle after Parkland would be identical to what happened after all the other high-profile shootings. The left would accuse the right of regurgitating NRA talking points. The right would accuse the left of lacking logic. The two sides would argue. The students would do their mourning and reeling and healing in silence. And after a lull, it would all just happen again. And for the most part, that is what happened except for the students staying quiet bit. If all our government and president can do is send thoughts and prayers, then it's time for victims to be the change that we need to see. That's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School senior Emma Gonzalez speaking days after the shooting. She and several of her classmates decided to get loud, and people seemed to listen. We certainly do not understand why it should be harder to make plans with friends on weekends than it is to buy an automatic or semi-automatic weapon. In Florida... In Florida, to buy a gun, you do not need a permit, you do not need a gun license, and once you buy it, you do not need to register it. You do not need a permit to carry a concealed rifle or shotgun. You can buy as many guns as you want at one time. Gonzalez and classmates like David Hogg and Morgan Williams and Cameron Caskey started getting attention. In a world where Twitter followers are, for better or worse, used as a way to measure influence, Gonzalez quickly amassed more than twice as many as the NRA. She and classmates have appeared on the covers of Time Magazine and Teen Vogue. The media left Parkland, Florida, but the students kept talking. They told people what they heard, what they smelled, what they saw, it was by design, one student, Samantha Grady, told the Today Show. I was, well, actually at the hospital, um, someone came in and they told me, talk about it as much as you can so it can get out of your brain and so you don't have, like, nightmares about it. They're still talking. We shouldn't be living in an America where we learn to accept these things. That's David Hogg at the Education Writers Association's annual convention on May 17th. And they continue to happen, where we've seen Parkland happen. And there was about 39 days of media coverage, which is pretty good because of the march and everything. But now it's like, okay. And it's terrifying to me because right now, what keeps me up at night is thinking that there's somebody alive right now that will not be alive at this time tomorrow Mm -hmm. and has never even thought about gun violence. Mm -hmm. 
but everybody around them will have to for the rest of their lives because they don't even know that person's going to die. It's worth noting that the day after Hogg said these words, the same day I sat down to write this episode, there was, in fact, another school shooting, this time in Santa Fe, Texas. Ten students were killed, 13 more were injured. Holland has watched these kids from Parkland, and he says... I mean, I'm, I'm super proud of those, those kids. It's, it's kind of amazing to watch them basically out-pundit a lot of professional pundits in a lot of ways, turn a lot of their arguments back on them, use in a lot of the social media network networking tools. Well, we didn't even have those. We didn't even have faith. We didn't really even have the internet for in, in a lot of capacities when I was when I was going through this. So, you know, a lot of times you're you're tickled at what they do, you're proud of what they do. Um, you're rooting for them, you want to support them. I think their goal is to keep this conversation going instead of the same cycle of, you know, a couple weeks to a month of outrage and then it just completely died down. He hopes, too, that they're taking time out for themselves. Right now, whether you like the work they're doing or not, and plenty of people don't, as evidenced by the barrage of harassment they get online every day, they have a goal right now. And having that as their focus might help them cope in the short term, but could potentially delay their healing in the long run. What happens when they slow down and look inward? I hope they're taking the time for the self-care that they need to do because I don't know what's going on with them interiorly, but they just need to make sure they take care of themselves too because they've got a lot of healing and they've got a long road ahead of them. And while I'm sure this helps a lot, is certainly I've found that it's helped me in the past few months, but... You know, it's, it's a lot harder than they may think it is right now, or it will be in the future. Holland feels like this is something he can speak to, even though he's careful to say everyone's trauma is different. He knows that healing from something this awful takes more than just time. He also worries about them being young and, at times, reviled because of their politics. Some people don't agree with their call for tougher gun laws. Some, like the president, say the answer is to arm teachers. It's called concealed carry, where a teacher would have a concealed gun on them. They'd go for special training, and they would uh, be there, and you would no longer have a gun-free zone. Others say to add more metal detectors or blockade the doors. This divide in political stances has meant the Parkland kids deal online with lies about them and even comparisons to Hitler. The teens to date have been pretty Teflon in their responses, mocking false reports that Hogg is a paid crisis actor rather than a real-life Parkland student. Classmate Cameron Kasky tweeted that Hogg is, quote, smart, funny, and diligent, but my favorite thing about him is undoubtedly that he's actually a 26-year-old felon from California. It's a good joke. Holland approves. Holland can't know how he would handle things today in the Twitter age, in a time when we know more about PTSD, and understand that you don't even have to have a bullet wound to be traumatized by a shooting. Maybe he'd be a Teflon kid, or in Time magazine. All he knows is that in 1997, he felt like he didn't have a right to be damaged, and he kind of shut down. I wouldn't say completely dead, but like definitely muted down. So after the shooting happened, I don't think I cried again for another year. And in that time period, my grandmother died of cancer. 
I just was either empty or played out or emotionally dead. And I remember the first time I cried was I had a nightmare about the shooting, like it had happened again. I woke up and I'd been crying. And so, yeah, for about a year, it was kind of shut off and closed off. I mean, I process it with humor, for lack of a better word, but as far as emotionally interacting with it, and that, that kind of, you know, it was, it, was about, it was a year before I kind of cried again. Elizabeth, my reporting partner, asks him. If you yeah. were to go back and, you know, talk to yourself as a 14, 15 year old, do you think you would have done that differently or? or I probably would say, yeah, I'd probably say, you know, okay, this, this humor game you got going on here is fine, but you should probably go see a mental health counselor. Not that he spends much time on regrets. The fact is there's no set playbook on how to handle this kind of thing. Everyone faces mortality differently. Everyone copes in their own way. Some make jokes, some buy guns, some fight guns. If I've learned anything while reporting this project, it's that no two scenarios are alike, no matter how similar they sound on the surface. How the survivors move forward is informed by how they were raised and what else they've been through. The only real universal, it seems, is that it never goes away. Not for those shot, not for witnesses, not for family members. Holland's mom, Nancy, says it's taken her years to learn that. She can still break into tears when something reminds her of that day. Really and truly, you just wanted, you just wanted everything to go back to normal. You know, let's just, let's just move on. And y- you can't do that because it, it never goes back to normal. I mean, I'll just be, I'll be driving to work and if I'm going the same way that I went to the hospital, I can just, all of a sudden, and I don't know what, you know, just come back for me and I start replaying everything. I already start replaying the phone calls. I start, you know, I can remember driving. I can remember, you know, just give me peace, give me peace, give me peace. That's a common refrain for each of the survivors we've interviewed for this project. In the aftermath, they're all still looking for peace. Aftermath is the result of a partnership between the Cincinnati Enquirer, part of the USA Today Network, and The Trace. It's reported by Amber Hunt and Elizabeth Van Brocklin, edited by Amy Wilson, and produced by Phil Didion and Amanda Rossman. Music is by Andrew Higley. Intern Brianna Rice assisted. Some episodes include additional sound courtesy of awesome local journalists. For full clip credits, go to our website. The podcast was supported in part by a fellowship from the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia Journalism School. For videos, photos, and more, go to aftermathpod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AftermathPod or find us on Facebook.